you have to have that it factor a little bit. Um, I can teach you the X's and O's, but that's one of the things that I didn't realize as a young strength coach. I thought I needed to read, you know, the latest Soviet uh, research and find what Yuri Verkashansky was doing with Olympic athletes in 1967 and, and that stuff. It's not about that. It's about building trust and relationships. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. We have an amazing podcast in store for you. And what's cool is this one lines up with All-Star Weekend in baseball. And we have TCU's Zach Deshant. And Tex will give you his exact title, so I don't butcher it. We got an amazing episode uh, with the Assistant Athletic Director for Human Performance at Texan Christian University, TCU, in Fort Worth and the author of Movement Over Maxis. Wow. I mean, I can hear the giddiness in your voice when you say it. You're so excited because we're talking about movement and function and the ability to seamlessly and effortlessly uh, apply force, lift weights, challenge, uh, you know, travel through full ranges of motion using external resistance and how you do it, not necessarily how much you do. Yes, and we got a lot to this episode. We have coach development, Zach takes a lot of interns and develops a lot of coaches out there. We got athlete development, so his athlete development model, and then you know baseball specific strength and conditioning, and a lot more. I mean, that's just the teeth. Uh, what I really appreciated was a little bit of a uh, hero's journey with him yeah. being a football player, getting into strength and conditioning coach uh, and strength and conditioning because he loved lifting weights. Uh, I thought it was ironic that his dad gave him almost the exact opposite advice that my father gave me, which is. Why would you want to do that only more on like the lift weights? His dad's like, hey, you like lifting weights? You should probably do that for a living. And so he gets into strength conditioning after, you know, doing a uh, football and coming from that side and then goes out and realizes that you can't train baseball players the same way you train football players. And when you train football players, it's real glycolytic heavy. I mean, it just has to be because the sport demands it. And he realized that, you know, baseball is kind of a lactic and big aerobic system and that no man's land glycolytic capacity doesn't necessarily have a place and that's where a lot of injuries and shittiness happens yeah and when he got into the industry for the baseball strength and conditioning it was that so conditioning test yada so it's because all strength conditioning starts with football i mean it's really if you go back to the roots of the very first strength conditioning coaches they were always coming from football we saw it go into track we've seen it go into other sports but it's always started with this idea of training football players and it just goes to show that it's two entirely different sports. You can't train them uh, the same. And I think where he's really differentiated himself and really stood apart is the fact that, um, one, he's got a book about it. He's got a development model. But he was very forthcoming and saying, hey, like, we're not going to train our baseball players like football players. And I think people that do are leaving a lot of games on the table. Or train them like baseball players would. So yeah, which some is, problems there, which we'll discuss in the episode. Yeah. I don't want to give it all away, even though I'd love to. Yeah, spoiler. I am the king of the spoiler. That is my deal. Like, if you see, if if there's a cool movie and I've seen it and you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you every time. (laughs) Okay. Ready. Let's go. All right, dude. Zach, Deshaun. Ready, ready. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Wilborn, CEO of Power Athlete. I'm joined by Mr. Chris McQuilkin, a.k.a. Director of Training, a.k.a. Tex. Howdy. A.k.a. just keep cutting you off. Sounds about right. And we got Zach DeCant in here, Assistant Athletic Director for Human Performance at Texas Christian University, author of Movement Over Maxes, and is certainly an awesome resource for strength and conditioning knowledge through his social media. So Zach, welcome to Power Athlete Radio. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Excited to uh, get this uh, Friday underway. Yeah, man, I, I've 
read into your story a little bit. So you've had an awesome journey into this career from a small town, man. So why don't we lay that groundwork and then we'll get into the specifics. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in a town with 300 people. Uh, we didn't have a weight room strength coach. If you want the truth, the, uh, our athletic coaches were guys that worked at the gas station. They were just, they just wanted to help. Right. So, um, it didn't have a lot of direction and, I just started picking up muscle medias and flex magazine and whatever I could find on strength and conditioning when I was, when I was a young athlete, cause my dad told me, he said, if you're going to want to, if you are going to progress in athletics, you're going to have to develop. You're not going to be the biggest guy. You're not going to be the fastest, strongest guy ever, wherever you go. So you've got to develop. And he was the one that really, that really got me started in this, uh, in this field. And so I bought my own weight room when I was a freshman in high school and started reading everything I could get my hands on. And, you know, when it came time to pick a major, I was a sophomore in college probably, and I could not figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And my dad, one day we were sitting on the couch, my dad said, well, you love lifting weights. You've been doing it forever. You know more about that than anything. Teach, teach athletes how to lift weights. And the light bulb went off. And from there, uh, I decided I was going to be a strength coach. Yeah, and you played college football, correct? Or yeah, I played college yeah. football at the Missouri State University. Um, went back there in G eight for two years, and then after that, spent two years with the uh, Anaheim Angels as a strength coach in their system. And then um, found my way to TCU based on the fact that I had been a, a college football athlete. I had been in professional baseball, and it was kind of the perfect storm because at that time there wasn't a separate department. So football and Olympic sports were all together. So I was coming in as a football and Olympic sports strength coach. And, um, since I had been both avenues, it, it just really, it kind of fit the bill. Yeah, man, almost an anomaly staying at the same school for, I mean, 15 years, right? Yeah. It's, it's something I would have never, uh, anticipated you, you know, when you're a young, when you're a young coach, you, uh, you're just prepared to move at all times. So I thought I'd be here maybe three to five years and then on to something else. And, um, you know, Fort Worth captured my heart, I guess. Um, I, I, I told my wife just this week when I found stability, I told her, I told her when I was younger and I, I finally found stability that I would grab onto it at all costs because I had seen, you know, my mentors go through three years at one school, move their family, two years at another school, get fired. And then you're, you're looking for a high school job in the meantime, trying to figure out how to, how to make ends meet. And so when I found stability, I just, I just grabbed onto it. The first three years in strength and conditioning, and this is what young coaches really need to understand because so many people want to go into, they want to be strength coaches, but they don't understand the uh, demands that it's going to put on your life. The first three years in the uh, field, I moved 13 different times. I had 13 different addresses. And so when you find stability, uh, I, I told myself I would always grab onto it. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I've stayed at TCU so long. Well, I mean, obviously like the program grew with you. So it wasn't necessarily something where you outgrew the position. I think a lot of times, um, you know, I mean, with strength coaches, they tend to be like the first guy to get axed when a, you know, coach is struggling a little bit, like, Oh, obviously it's the strength coach's problem. <laughs> so, you know, that's like the, the classic or, you know, Hey, we're, you know, uh, going in a different direction. I mean, there's always these different moves, but for the most part, uh, I think sometimes strength coaches just outgrow the program and they need to maybe bring somebody in new coach. So, I mean, obviously with your stability, I mean, you haven't outgrown the program. Has there been stability within the coaching, uh, like on the other side where you've had the same coach and, 
you guys have been successful and they're, you know, at a position where they're, Hey, obviously this is working. Let's not keep, you know, keep messing yeah. It up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when I first got to TCU, the baseball program was, it was a good mid-major program, but it was, it was nothing on the national scene. Um, our head coach had been here up until last year. So he just left this last uh, summer to go to Texas A&M, which they had a really, really successful year, just finished uh, just into their season two days ago. So they're going to finish in the top three or four in the country. Uh, but he was here for, you know, 14 of my 15 years. And now our pitching coach who has been here the previous 10 years has stepped into the head coach role. So yeah, our staff has been consistent throughout my entire tenure. And obviously that lends itself to, to the stability. And we've built the program from, like I said, a, a mid-major, a good mid-major school to a uh, really a national power at the uh, power five level. I mean, does that even happen anymore? Um, it feels like, I mean, uh, you know, I come from football, uh, like you did, and it feels like, uh, you know, like the shiny car driving by, like, we got to get this coach, we got to get these players. And every year has like this changing. I mean, we're here well, in that's Austin. That's just UT. Well, I mean, we're here in Austin and, uh, like UT football makes me want to throw up. I mean, like they just like, they just keep plugging people in, plugging people in and they don't care. Like if this guy can get them one more win and make the boosters happy, we're going to bring them in and throw them out. And it's like, as a player, uh, you know, that, that idea of stability and like consistency and whatever just doesn't exist. And then they wonder why they don't win. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's really, really rare. Um, and that was one of the, uh, reasons why it was so hard to, you know, coach, coach Schlossnagel wanted to, uh, wanted to take me to Texas A&M. My wife and I were, were having uh, a baby basically the month after, uh, that job was being put on the, uh, put on my plate as a possibility. And it was one of those things where it was, it was poor timing, but stability to me is so important. My wife would move anywhere around the country. She's always excited. Let's go find a new house. Let's move somewhere else. Look at this job. Look at that job. But she doesn't understand that you could spend two or three years at Texas A&M and have average, average seasons. And they say, no, thanks. You guys are done. And now instead of being, you know, having the stability that I've been talking about so much, now you're, you're chasing uh, a high school job or something else to fit the, to fit the means in the, uh, in the meantime. And it's just, it can absolutely wreck your, to me, it can wreck your life a little bit because ADs are, are willing to, to sacrifice head coaches for, you know, for marginal seasons. And, and a lot of times you don't get very much time. So, um, I, I that's why I choose stability, uh, overall. Well, and college station, Let's let's be real uh, here. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not afraid now, to say it. Uh, no, it, I mean it's terrible. Uh, you know, we uh, when I was playing the NFL, we went down there. One of uh, the guy that, that I worked with, a guy named Rafael Ruiz, uh, got brought in as like a, a consultant for Texas A&M. So we went down and trained with those guys. And I remember driving around here, and I was like, "Holy shit, dude! Like this is not a place I'd want to go to school." But people love it, and like the people that we meet that are Aggies, uh, they're like have their whole little like cult deal going. Yeah, I'm a two percenter. I got nothing to do with A and M, and I'm happy about it. The, it's definitely well, a cult. Yeah, dude. The, it's got well, some. There's some odd things to go on. Well, yeah. getting back to that that stability and the the impact and seeing it, man. So many coaches nowadays are so focused on the the dream of being a college coach that they're not able to see the perspective that you have. Where yes, their their friends, their leaders, their mentors are getting axed and saying goodbye. And like with that becomes a, a lot of 
I mean, you lose mentorships. It's part of the grind and the hustle that we hear so much about. But shit, man, you had this different perspective of, okay, roots, roots are my goal, my why. How can we, I mean, better explain it to young coaches out there that still have this dream? Like, how can we better say it? Because there's so many lost out there. Yeah, the young coaches, I just don't think understand that this is really what we have to tell interns a lot of times because we're, we're, we're in DFW. So you've got a, you've got a huge area here, but there's not that many opportunities in strength and conditioning, um, especially at the division one level. I think there's three division one schools here um, in DFW or in the DFW area, North Texas area. You've got uh, UTA, um, TCU. You've got, I guess you got SMU over there. You've got UNT. So add that to the mix. There's four. And that's kind of the, the big opportunities in strength and conditioning. And out of all those schools, you've probably got maybe, maybe at most, you know, five full-time coaches. And so there's very few opportunities. So what I have to tell interns is, do you want to be a strength coach or do you want to live in DFW? Those are the, 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 the decisions that you're going to have to make because the opportunity for you to become a GA and an assistant coach, they're not going to come here in DFW. And so we actually don't hire a lot of DFW uh, interns because for that reason, we want interns to understand that they're going to have to prove themselves and it's going to take, you're going to have to show how much you love strength and conditioning by moving around the country if you want the truth. So we hire a lot of our interns from out of the area and out of the state. Man, I was on the, on that path as well. And I was fortunate to get an opportunity with Donnie Mabe at University of Texas and I, I was turned down for so many jobs and they told me, yeah, you're great here, interviewed well, but you don't know anybody. And so I ultimately made a list. And fortunately, we had an uh, opportunity to travel the world to teach seminars, made a list of top five cities I want to live in. So Austin, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, this is before Ruiz in Tampa. And then called up all those schools. And fortunately, Donnie answered and uh, took a shot. But he, uh, he didn't sugarcoat anything. So walked right into an interesting football experience for Texas because we had the head strength and conditioning coach of Mad Dog, Jeff Mad Dog Madden, and then yeah. the head strength and conditioning coach, Benny Wiley. And so I was essentially like the kid caught in the middle of these two fighting parents and, uh, you know, saw the, the, the curtain pulled back on Oz, if you will, and what this division one strength and conditioning is really about. Because within six months of me being there, both those guys got the axe along with the head coach. And it was like, okay, on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, is it uh, – I mean, like uh, what Tom Landry had, what, like 20 winning seasons? And I think he was like, a, you know, uh, lost his first game and his first season. I don't even know if he won a game. I mean, so it's really like the longevity and the consistency in coaching like doesn't really exist anymore. And I think with this NIL deal, it's even made it worse. Where now you yeah. have boosters. Like I – um. Uh, like it's real big news here in Austin that uh, Arch Manning signed here. And yeah, I saw as, that. as I dug in, uh, there's a kid that's coming out of Long Beach Poly. Uh, I forgot his name. He's like the number one recruit in football and, and volleyball. This kid's like 6'6", 200. He makes Arch Manning look like uh, like a junior high school player. Like this kid was throwing like 80-yard bombs. Like they were showing the clips and I'm like, holy shit, look at this kid. And he, you know, his deal was like $8 million and he went to Tennessee and that's why Tennessee stopped recruiting Arch Manning. And like, they were going through like, Oh yeah, this is great for UT, but this is the reason that he, he yeah. went here. So it's amazing that these kids like have these opportunities and like, you know, these boosters are, are 
throwing money. I mean, I'm sure there were teams. I mean, I never got paid. I don't know how you did, but uh, I mean, these boosters have been throwing money in directly. Now they can throw it right at it. And now with this and the buying of the players, like if the kid doesn't win or doesn't do well, it's never going to be the kid's fault. It's always going to be the people that they pay the less money to. So that's where I even look at even like less consistency in this coaching where, you know, now all of a sudden the boosters have like visibly worked their way into the pocket. Whereas before they were kind of, you know, the Nick Saban, like, you know, uh, you know, he's been paying his players for years. I don't give a shit what he says. You know, nobody's going to Tuscaloosa. It's Um, always been behind the scenes though. Right. And now it's, and now it's not, I mean, the the NIL is going to completely change the landscape, the transfer portal, all this all this stuff is completely changing the landscape of college sports. So how do, like how does that affect you guys? I mean, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're like, hey, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing, which is you know developing athletes and you know the you know, working with the players that want to stay. And if a kid has a great season and wants to go somewhere else, like we've invested our time and maybe we got something out of them, but we can't necessarily worry about them. Yeah. So the biggest the biggest place it's uh, impacting us is in long term athletic development. You know, especially myself, I've got a book that I wrote on how we develop our athletes from the first stage. And then, you know, I I don't necessarily go beyond that first stage with the book, but it's all about developing in that in that foundation program so that we set them up for our intermediate program and then our advanced program. Well, our athletes don't make it into the intermediate program anymore. If you don't play as a freshman, they transfer. And so I've got them for nine months. And then what do we get on the back end? I've got, you know, seven to 10 transfers coming in that are juniors, seniors, maybe fifth year guys from other schools now that that won't necessarily go into our foundation program because they've been in programs elsewhere. And so it's kind of this thing. It, it, you're in this like weird, like nexus of how do you train this athlete? I don't know if you really know how to train, but you're only going to be here for nine months. And so we have to basically get every ounce of, of, of skill development out of you for this period of time so that you can be really, really good on the baseball field. And I, I don't have a long-term, I don't need to have a long-term outlook for, for some of these guys. So that's what's really changing. And, and I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking how I'm going to manage this, this basically this, you know, exodus of players and incoming players for nine months at a time. That's what, that's what strength and conditioning is becoming. It's a nine month window. So when you um, played your college ball, uh, where, where'd you play? You said Missouri, Missouri state. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I played at Cal and I remember when I came in as a freshman, you know, on a recruiting trip, they're like, you guys are going to be playing as freshmen. You're probably going to start your second year. I came in and redshirted. I mean, like, dude, like there was no way physically I was, you know, like uh, I didn't even own a razor when I went to college. I grew two inches. You know, and I'm showing up and these dudes are 23 with like full beards and chest and they all bench like 500 pounds. I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm playing. Yeah. And I remember some of the guys were like, we've been lied to. They said we were going to play. And I'm like, did you really believe that? I'm like, uh, like, there's no fucking way. These guys have like hair on their chest and they got beards and like have deep right. voices. Like we're a bunch of kids. And uh, like that just seemed like, you know, you get bullshitted. But now it's like, uh, you know, if you come in as a freshman, uh, I mean, and then, you know, I ended up playing my second year and starting and then going to the NFL. But uh, like there was a maturation process that had to happen. And now what I feel like is because the, it's so easy to pull the ripcord and felt like you've been wronged and lied to, the kids are just like, I'm going to go somewhere else really quick. And you're like, dude, you showed yeah. up here and you signed here for a reason. Like I, I'm fucking against it. I think that the transfer portal on this is uh, the death of, of college sports. I mean, it's basically turning yeah. it into like, you know, uh, like just do what baseball does. Let's have a major league farm, uh, you know, farm programs, drive yeah. the kids right out of high school and let them go. Cause, uh, 
my friends that actually went to try to go play professional baseball compared to me going to college in the NFL. Um, what an awful existence to like go into the farm leagues and they're playing at these teams and they're getting traded and they come back. And I mean, like I'm listening to the stories of some of my buddies that went to play baseball and I'm like, dude, that fucking sucked. I would rather have gone to college and gone a different route. And now they've effectively turned college into this kind of farm system. And yeah. I, I look at it. I'm like one, you're giving a whole bunch of kids that aren't mentally or emotionally or physically just prepared for any of these decisions. Uh, I know when I went to the NFL at 23, I still wasn't prepared to make any of these financial decisions. Now you're giving it to them five years earlier. I mean, it just, to me, it's um, uh, like, I couldn't imagine a worse situation. And, and yeah. as a coach being thrown in and thrust in and having to deal with it, where now all of a sudden, you know, you're developing a kid who looks great. He leaves another guy shows up and you're like, oh, fuck, we were just getting going. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what's, that's, what's tough. And part of the reason that these, these athletes leave TCU baseball only gets, you know, 11.2 scholarships. So very few of our, our, our athletes are really making, they're not making money. They're spending a lot of money to come to TCU. And so on one end, it's hard for me to blame them because they're paying, I think school now costs 68 or $78,000 to go to TCU. That's, that's a big check when what? you're not playing. Yeah, that's a big check when you're not playing and you're not on a baseball scholarship. And so oh, wow. at TCU, it's hard for me to blame a freshman that didn't play that says, man, I got to get out of here and go play and get reps so that I can develop. It's hard to blame that um, when they can go to Texas Tech or UT or wherever, you know, in-state school and get, you know, probably spend $15,000 a year on tuition or whatever it is. That's that's part of the issue with of being at a private school that we that we face. Is it more scholarships? I mean, like, uh, like I mean, to me, the more intelligent way to have done this NIL deal was uh, if these boosters wanted to contribute, make it like a a pack or a or, or a um, like a like a, a donation where you're limited in a certain amount, and they could invest money and actually privately pay for more scholarships. Like that's the way, like, or they could yeah. like uh, fund a training table, or you know, like allow the boosters to actually contribute to the program, opposed from being like. Hey, this kid's going to get a Lamborghini and, uh, and, you know, and show up to Texas in a Lamborghini right. as a, you know, and then all of a sudden you're going to have a bunch of other dudes that didn't get that. And you're like, this well, fucking asshole got a Lamborghini. Well, think back to Cal where they asked you to fundraise and what it turned into a new locker room. So now it could be redirected yeah. to more opportunities, more education, uh, more scholarships. Yeah. I mean, if, if TCU only has 11 scholarships, point two. Yep. Yeah, you know, for, for baseball. And you, you have boosters that are willing to donate money. You're like, why don't you just give us more scholarships so we can keep these kids? Yeah. And, but I mean, uh, that's actually, just, that's the NCAA rule though. Every baseball program only gets 11.2 scholarships. Well, the NCAA yeah. is, uh, is NCAA. Yeah, yeah. Which we call the NCAA assholes, which, uh, what was it from? The program. Yeah. The program when he's like the NCAA assholes, uh, yeah, I mean, they're pretty much cut their own throat with this NIL deal. I mean, they're going in a heap of fire because, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, they take it's Reggie Bush's Heisman Trophy for exactly what they're allowing people to do today. I mean, and they won't give it back. And you're like, well, dude, you can't double jeopardy a guy. I mean, now all of a sudden you've changed the rules. Like, give him his Heisman Trophy yeah. back. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, it's a wild west right now. And a few years down the road, what we're hearing is that there's going to be a massive uh, – landscape shift in in rules and conferences and, and and all kinds of things so it's supposedly coming down the pipe in two to three years that there's going to be a big big shift with the uh with the rules and legislation that happens right now well the sec is basically going to be their own that's yeah it's league. gonna 
It's, yeah. I told our interns it's going to be the SECA, right? The NCAA is basically just going to disappear and it'll just be the SECA. Well, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about training. Uh, yeah. Sure. You know, um, and like to take it down that road, I'm really fascinated by your development model. And especially, uh, I haven't seen Chris this excited to talk on a podcast uh, in years. So, well, the, the book is Movement Over Maxes, and this is a beautiful one-liner. Describing, I mean, a similar battle that we face. He comes from a football program, so he's seen a lot of awful 1RMs and a (laughs) lot of hype strength coaches and a lot of hype football coaches. Uh, One of my favorite stories is I I squatted like 6'10 when I was 19. And as I was going to take 6'10 out of the rack, I remember I walked back and all of a sudden I felt somebody grab me around like my midsection and slap me as hard as they can. And I looked in the mirror and it was our head coach, Steve Mariucci had walked in just as I was getting underneath the bar, told the strength coach to fucking beat it, that he was going to spot me. And like all of a sudden it hit the bottom and he's screaming as loud as he could in my ear. And I stood up with it and uh, like, uh, like everybody was so hyped. I mean, it was actually a legit nice squad below parallel had wraps and a belt, but uh, that's just like the excitement of of football. So I can imagine you coming from that and being like, we're not doing this dog shit. Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, there's a lot of that. Except what you said about, you know, a legit squat, that's, that's sometimes where the, uh, <laughs> where the train leaves the tracks because there's, I was there's a, a lot of big lifter. numbers. There's yeah, not a, a good le- lifter. Yeah. There's not a lot of legit, uh, lifts when it comes to those big numbers. Um, and a, a lot of times it just, I shouldn't even say a lot of times, more times than not, it becomes how much weight and not how, how efficient or what the quality of the movement is. Right. And really movement over max is just, it came out of the past 15 years of teaching my athletes when they would walk in the weight room. Cause baseball players, especially 10 and 15 years ago, they were not adept to the weight room. They, they'd stayed away from it for the most part. And at the high school level, you don't have a strength coach that is associated with other sports. A lot of times, a lot of times it's a football coach or a football strength coach at the high school level that just kind of throws the baseball kids in with it. And the baseball kids either show up or they don't show up. So they really had no background in lifting when they were coming to TCU. And so this just was out of necessity to teach my athletes how to lift because eventually as you progress through the phases or the uh, blocks, which start with the foundation program and our developmental model, then goes into the intermediate program and our advanced program, the movements are all the same. It's always a squat, a hinge, you know, upper body push and pulls, um, single leg work, the movements all stay the same. There's variations within them, whether it's volume intensity, um, or, or slight movement variation within those, but everything, everything has to be built from that foundation. And so it was, it was nothing more than teaching our athletes really how we wanted them to sprint, jump and move in the weight room. And you probably have a little transverse plane thrown in there. There is, but and a balance of uh, bilateral and unilateral movements. Shocker. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's your standard program. We just we just wanted to teach the athletes how to lift. And then where it really came to book form was for 15 years, I would get emails on a weekly basis. Hey, send me your program. Send me a program. Can you send me anything to to from high school coaches? And so um it really came out of necessity that I was like, man, I got to write a book so I don't have to send these guys, you know, emails on why I can't send you the exact program I'm using with my college athletes because your athletes have no idea what I'm talking about. It might, right. it's like reading Chinese, you know? And you so know, that's I, where the book came in. I ran into the same thing when I retired from the NFL. Um, I got hit up by a bunch of people asking me what I did for my training. 
And I remember telling a guy like, you want to do my training? Like, dude, I played 10 years in the NFL. I've been lifting weights since I'm 14. Like, right. why would you think that the program that I'm using at this point is going to benefit you when you don't have that training history? And yeah. that's when I realized that, uh, that beginners have to train with beginners. And I think that there's like a negative connotation with the, with the word beginner, where I tell people like begin, being a beginner is the most awesome thing in the world because you make the most progress that you'll ever make in your life. Like yeah. once you get to that, like tip of the spear, the, the advanced, like, what do I put like, you know, two to three, five, six, and maybe seven pounds on a lift in an entire year. Whereas I was putting that on in the week as a beginner, like enjoy being a beginner. But there's yeah. like this negative connotation. And I think even for your athletes, when they come in, no, I've been doing this stuff. And you're like, so, I mean, maybe you changed it where you're like, hey, this is our developmental block. And you kind of have to skin these. And there's some semantics associated, uh, associated with it because people get butthurt so quick. Yeah. And what I'll tell you what we found since I released the book, and I guess it's been four or five years now, is that the athletes coming in buy the book. And so a lot of them have, have they've already done the program, which is great. I really don't get any pushback on it. I get this. I get asked this question all the time from coaches is that, Hey, my athlete said, you know, they're not going to do this beginner stuff or they have problems with this beginner stuff. They're not going to do the foundation program. And how do you get, how do you get through that? How do you convince your team to do it? And for me, it's not, it's not any of that. That's what we're doing. And it's the culture of our program. It's not so much about the movements and the actual foundation program itself. It's about developing the culture and the, the, the principles and the expectations that go into TCU baseball. And that's why this foundation program for us is so important. Um, and I don't get pushback on it because this is just the way. Our head coach is behind it. He knows exactly what it is. Our staff is behind it. And so I never have an athlete that's like, man, this is stupid or this sucks or why are we doing this? I've been squatting for three years. It really just doesn't happen. Um, but we also let the athletes that have competency in the weight room, we let them progress. So it's not like I'm holding an athlete back on purpose. And I get this question asked a lot too. I'm not holding somebody back on purpose and making them go through very rudimentary movements and, and, and weights and all this stuff. We make sure they can move early on and move with competency. And if you can, then yes, we're going to use more weight. We're going to increase the load. If I've got other guys in the group that don't have that competency, basically we're just regressing them. I, it's it's all talked about in the book, but I'm not holding athletes back on purpose. We're going to let them develop at their own pace. It's just everybody's going to go through this this program for the most part, so that we know that those movement principles are locked in. Yeah, for so we have online education for coaches, and our aim is we give them a program to follow along and apply to their athletes as they're, they're going through the lessons. And a big part of that is competency and seeing it. So giving these cues, giving these directions to their athletes and seeing how the athletes respond. Like if it's, uh, we need your toes forward for your squat, think athletic position, and then their toes are drifting out or they're losing position and the athlete communicates back. My toes weren't out. So they're in this stage of unconscious incompetence. They don't know they're in a bad position. And not fighting back with the coach, but just, hey, why are you saying that? I was fine. Right. That's that beginner stage. And then gradually how you're communicating on top of how the athlete is moving starts to come together. And then we see this development and going through the beginner phase of this athlete. And then they're ready to, like, that's where the fun begins, once they get through that progression. So a cool education trip that we give to our, our coaches virtually, apply the program communicate, and then you will develop as a coach as your athlete develops. 
Yeah. Well, and and there, there's also, I think, a misconception, too, with, uh, with a lot of athletes where you're like, you know, the sports-specific aspect and, more importantly, your skill development happens on the field. All we're trying to do is make you, you know, uh, stronger, being able to, you know, uh, challenge posture and position through full range of motion movements, you know, making sure you're stable in these different positions and then uh, make you stronger so that you can effectively go out and do all this stuff better. Like uh, it doesn't happen without the actual preparation on the field. And I think with yeah. football so much, I mean, uh, I mean, that's what we see all the time that there's, they think that there's something magical happening in the weight room. And I'm like, dude, all we're doing is sharpening your blade and making the steel stronger. At the end of the yeah. day, it's going to take you to go out there and, and be able to swing it and use it in meaningful ways. Yeah, and th- and that's one of the things that that I saw in football a ton, and I made this mistake. Was to me, there's the physical and the skill development, right? And you have to be incredibly skilled to be able to play, to be able to to be a to be a, a stud in your sport. You have to have the skill. There's just there's no way around it. And I used to think that, hey, bigger, faster, stronger. That's that's the way that I'm going to play more. And I missed out a lot of times on the skill development. Those two aren't. Those two aren't necessarily tied into each other because the weight room is going to be very general. We all know that. So we're building, just like you said, we're building general outputs, capacities um, to apply that into our skill development. But athletes can't forget about the skill side. They can't forget about how important that really is. The weight room is not the substitute for skill development. Well, that, that's what always makes me laugh whenever, you know, uh, a program stumbles a little bit and they're like, oh, we, have, you know, we, we weren't fit enough. We, uh, you know, this and they give all the, all the stuff to use the sacrificial lamb and getting rid of the head coach or uh, the, the strength coach. And it's always a chuckle for me because I'm like, I've never met a strength coach that actually got to call the plays or coach any technique. Right. And at the end of the day, like, you know, uh, like it's not as if, um, you know, like uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was Aaron Osmus made a joke where he was like, you know, talking to the strength coaches like, oh, my God, wait a minute. You lift weights, too. And they're heavy. And you guys yeah. squat and bench and you guys use dumbbells too. Like, uh, you yeah. know, like it was, it was kind of funny. Like, Oh my God, you guys are doing that stuff too. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, you know, and, and not to say there aren't shitty strength coaches, just like there's shitty sport coaches. But I think at this point, um, because there's so much, um, access with social media and, you know, the internet and all, you know, podcasts like this, that like, it's pretty easy to ferret out who's good and bad. And I think that like what it's done is it is effectively has raised the bar because you can't hide as a shitty coach anymore. And there's really no excuse to, because there's so much access in terms of information out there. Yeah, exactly. I I wanted to uh, touch on something that, that you guys just, that we just uh, talked about here a second ago was having your coaches go through the program, I think is what you were talking about. And that's something that I just started implementing in the last year is with our foundation program. I make our incoming summer interns go through the program. We're actually starting it next week because our incoming athletes will start up July 5th. So we jump in a week ahead and I make our interns go through the program. So I coach it as if I'm coaching the uh, incoming freshmen and the interns actually have to perform the movements and go through the program so that they know and understand exactly what they are going to be coaching. Because at the end of the day, I implement the program, but it's really the interns that implement it for me. So they get a ton of coaching reps. I oversee everything and the interns are the ones that are going to coach that for us. So that's why I need them to know exactly what to feel, what, what the movement patterns are, um, what we're trying to get across to our athletes. So I think that's a great thing that you guys, that you guys, uh, you know, have your, uh, have your coaches do within your programs. Man, we've been doing that since day one. Uh, when I, uh, first got hit up by CrossFit and we started working with them, uh, we were putting out programming and I would go in and either myself or, you know, the group we were training, we would test everything the day before. 
And I remember when we would go out and start working with coaches and start talking about some program development, I would look at some of these people's stuff and I would always ask them, I'm like, have you ever done this? Like, do you know how long this would take? Like, like where, where are the limitations? Where are people going to fail? And invariably the comment, they would, I would never do this shit. This is awful. Yeah. And I remember being like, man, that's like a chef that won't eat his own cooking. Like, I don't want that. Like, uh, like you have to be able to do this stuff and understand like exactly where your athletes are going to break down, where the limitations are, uh, so that, you know, either you make changes because there was a lot of times we went in and did shit that I would never put out. And when we figured that, like, this was hilarious, we, we found out pretty accurately that like pulling heavy deadlifts and then doing some form of dynamic hip flexion, like, uh, knees to toes and toes to bar and some stuff like that gave everybody sciatica and fucked everybody's back up. And we're like, well, we figured that one out the hard way. And, uh, you know, so there was a whole lot of stuff we figured out within like what we called the lab. But I think so often uh, people just start putting numbers and sets and they think, oh, this looks right. Or it kind of looks like somebody's else without any practical application and really, uh, you know, on the field knowledge of what it goes through. Right. Same thing you run into, I'm sure with, uh, you know, I used to run into football coaches all the time where the guy had never played and he's over there trying to coach you. And I'm like, how did you handle this when it came up? Oh, I never did this job. And you're like, well, fuck you. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I talk about a lot with our coaching staff, especially is that just because, just because you didn't think it was hard, doesn't mean it wasn't hard to the athletes. This is one thing you got to get across to coaches is that with our GPS system, I, I take, I, I look at the objective information from our GPS with our position players and then we'll take RPE. So they get, you know, they give us uh, how they felt at practice and how hard practice was. And a lot of times you'll get a high score on the RPE and then you'll go back to the coach and say, you know, how hard did you think that practice was? Oh, that was easy. We didn't do anything. You know, that, that was nothing. But that's not what the athletes felt. And so just because it didn't look hard to you doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. So we're constantly educating our coaching staff, our skill coaches, that it's the athletes are really always right. Because just because you didn't think it looked hard or that drill isn't supposed to be hard doesn't mean that it that it wasn't. Because there's a lot of times we'll end up taking we'll have a kid take a hundred ground balls in twenty minutes, and they will be absolutely gassed. And the coaches don't realize it because it's short movements. It's it's um, you know it's it's a couple steps here, flipping ground balls and things like that. But the athlete will be that's the hardest thing that I've done this semester. And the coaches will say, "No, nah, we just took a couple ground balls. No big deal." They don't realize. It. Right? So you constantly have to educate your coaches to talk to the athletes and see how hard that training or whatever that drill actually was. Yeah. And working with different sports teams, one of my pet peeves was the skill sport coaches going off and just having their own conversations and then checking back in in 10 minutes and assuming that it was easy versus, you know, engaging and seeing and, and you know, communicating with the, the sport, the strength coach. Or the athletes, how difficult or how hard that was, uh, dude. Especially uh, in 105 degree heat. Well, here. I mean, uh, like high school football was the worst. Uh, I had a, a football coach who was a former Marine. Like I think he stormed the beaches at Iwo Jima. He was so old, um, but uh, he believed that water was weakness. Oh, so yeah. we so, used to have like uh, you got one water break, so we would have like an offensive practice, which was like I think 75 minutes, and we'd have a defensive practice of 75 minutes, and we got a 10 minute water break in the middle. And we weren't allowed to touch any water. We weren't allowed to take your helmet off. We weren't allowed to unbuckle it. I think you could take your mouthpiece out. But like the whole water is weakness. And the entire 10 yeah. minutes, he would sit there and just rat fuck us on yeah. how weak we were that we needed a water break. And, you know, it's 100 degrees, 95 degrees, you know, football pads, middle of summer. And um, like so uh, and I it's, fucking hate that. But I mean, it's 
like it seemed ridiculous at the time. And I remember when I went to college, they had like, you know, the, uh, the managers, you know, with the water, like the bitch and Gatorade things to squirt water. And I you're like, this so is excited. awesome. Oh, I was so excited. I drank too much water my first day and like I'll throw up <laughs> when we went to do conditioning. Cause I, I was just so excited that we, we, you mean I can go get water anytime. And they're like, yeah, this is fucking weird. Just go get water. Yeah. Oh, I grew up in that era. We also had the, uh, the, uh, push your salt tablets. Make sure you guys are eating your salt tablets. That's what, that's what we were preached. No water, but make sure you're eating your salt tablets so that the uh, salt pulls all the water out of your muscle and out of your body, essentially, uh, and, and just completely freaking wrecks your ass. Yeah. Well, uh, when I came in the NFL, they used to give us uh, salt gum. Like they were like these little round salt gums. And actually, they were pretty decent. Um, and then uh, all of a sudden, Gatorade came in. And next thing you know, they were fucking trying to pump us full of Gatorade, which actually made me feel a thousand times worse. And um, yeah, I never drank the Gatorade, but. No, man, it's, I mean, it's funny to look back on this stuff and realize how archaic it is and then uh, kind of laugh and you're like, I can't believe more people didn't die from this stupid shit. That's exactly what I thought too. Yeah. Like I, I like um, a big change in the NFL happened. Corey Stringer ended up dying yeah. and then they were like, you know, they like a ton of the rules, even though uh, the re, you know, they banned ephedrine. I mean, they just did all like, they just did a fucking hose of everything. Like they had that portal. I mean, so he, he came in out of shape. Um, way too overweight. They woke him up for conditioning. He didn't drink, you know, I mean, there was just a perfect storm. It was hot. Like, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, I mean, what's sad is it takes players passing away and bad things happening for things to make changes. I mean, that doesn't necessarily happen in baseball as much, but I mean, I, I have seen some of the, uh, internationally, some of these kids just collapsing and having some issues. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our philosophy is always going to be built around speed and power and conditioning for us the aerobic energy system is really only there to support a lactic workload, speed and power. And so with a, and the aerobic system is actually very, very important. And, you know, it, it gets, it gets trashed a lot in our industry, but it's really important for parasympathetic response and letting your guys recover, but it's there. It's very important also to support high workloads because obviously we know the, the more work you can do, the, the better athlete on the end that you can turn into and so uh, the aerobic system is actually really important. We're not going to delve much into the anaerobic glycolytic. I shouldn't even say much. It's never. And that's really how most team sport athletes should, uh, how they should train. It's alactic speed and power on one side. It's the aerobic system on the other side to support those alactic efforts. And the stuff in the middle is where all your athletes honestly get fucked up. That's, that's where that hard conditioning stuff happens. It's where your 300-yard shuttles, your 110s, and all that tough, stupid mental toughness stuff that we did, honestly, when we played 20 and 25 years ago, that's where people get into trouble with it. And that's really a very, very small part of the game that people don't realize. That's You're not really training specific when you're training in that, uh, that, that middle energy system zone, which is the anaerobic glycolytic energy system with a lactic, whatever you want to call it. Well, I mean, um, and, no. and that's where and that's where football lives. Yeah. So I, I I think what's ridiculous is if you look at the you know we we just I, I just recently went to see the Houston Astros play. Um, I took my kids like they'd never been to a professional baseball game, so we drove down, went to a game on Saturday, which was an amazing place to see a game. Uh, but the the funny part was like my daughter was like, man, they don't seem like they're uh, like like they do a lot of work. I'm like, yeah, because it's uh it's perfect execution. Like yeah. the plays happen so fast. Like the result, it's not like football where like you it's said, all about it, skill. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like the, uh, you know, the opportunities these guys have are, you know, like 
split second, you know, last maybe two or three seconds. It's not like something like football or rugby or some of these other sports where they live in that glycolytic capacity. And uh, I think that carryover for baseball probably comes from football where it's like, oh, we got to train a bunch of baseball players like football players. And you're like, dude, it's completely two different sports with two different energy demands. And, uh, you know, and there's no way for, I mean, because just because the volume in terms of play is so high in baseball that I don't know if you could train a bunch of baseball players like that and have them survive. Yeah, no. And there's really no reason to. This is what's really difficult is that baseball practices are completely different from games. And you really don't want that to happen in other sports, football, soccer, rugby, whatever. You really want to match a lot of the practice demands to what you're going to face in the game. But baseball, it's impossible to do that because you may you may get one ground ball during a game. You may get no ground balls, but you can't prepare for the possibility that you're only going to get one to five ground balls during a game or one to five fly balls as an outfielder. So you have to take thousands and thousands and thousands of reps in practice to be able to prepare for the opportunity of that one ground ball. And that's why baseball practices never, ever match the games. The games are actually way, way less stressful and way less demanding than what happens in practices because you, you, they're just two completely different things. You have to prepare with thousands of reps for that opportunity in a game of one or two reps that, that might happen. And in football, you know, we'd have, two and a half to three and a half hour practices for a three hour game. And a lot of times you would match a lot of the, uh, the demands that you're going to face. You, you, you see the same amount of plays. You, you know, everything was somewhat similar a lot of times, whereas baseball, it's, it's, it's just not that way. Yeah. When you started with the angels, did you bring that football mentality to them and they had yeah. to settle you down or did you learn right away? I got to change. So, no, that was, that was actually, to be honest, what, I guess in my mind probably made me different and, and gave me an advantage is I did not bring the baseball thought process to baseball, which, like I said, I think it gives me a huge advantage. I think it gives coaches a huge advantage because baseball has been locked in this antiquated, we're going to run the piss out of you. We're going to do, you know, mental toughness running for pitchers and all this stuff. That's just not how the game is played. And so I brought speed, power, and the thought process of football training and really track and field training to baseball uh, when I was, when I was a young coach versus, Hey, we're going to go out and run 20 poles every day and torch these guys for really no reason. I wanted to train them like, like what they needed to be trained, speed, power, strength, um, fast with lots of rest. So I brought a completely different viewpoint. And I think in a way that's kind of what separated me and, and, and made me at the time it was, I was an, I was an outlier in baseball, but that's also, I think what gave me advantage and an advantage going down the road with, uh, with our training. Are you starting to see a shift in that for other programs? I know we know, yeah. we know coach couch at Texas here and he's seems he's doing some similar things and having some, some success. Yeah. Yeah. He's Matt's a great guy. Um, yes. Pro baseball especially has changed and there's a lot of good organizations. Now I'd say there's probably still some that are behind the eight ball and there's still some, some old minds in there that, that are stuck in their antiquated ways, but pro baseball has come a long way and they're really a lot of organizations are leading the charge in that with sports science and the analytics that they're throwing into, into uh, their performance programs and the same thing in college. We're seeing it everywhere. And, and just like you said, everybody's, everybody's in the weight room training now. 
versus 10 and 15 years ago, there weren't that many college programs that one had baseball strength coaches and, or two actually trained during the year. We were, we were the outlier. People were, I used to post on Instagram or I'm sorry, it wasn't even Instagram at the time. It was, it was probably Twitter. I posted, Hey, we're training at the college world series. It would show us lifting and people would lose their minds. And like you're training in season, you're training at the highest level of competition of the year. And you guys are actually lifting in a weight room. What are you guys doing? And you know, that's, that's standard today. Well, I mean, there, there was also a, you know, conception for a long time or a misconception for a long time that lifting weights would effectively negatively impact baseball players because it yeah. would, you know, uh, would make them tight and like they couldn't throw. And then, uh, when I went to the Eagles, I got drafted, uh, we shared, uh, the bet with the Phillies and it was pretty funny cause we would like see those guys and, um, shit dude, like the amount of bodybuilding that those guys were doing was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, like, like going like before they were going out there, we'd see those guys in there where they'd have the, uh, the Arnold, you know, preacher curl thing. Yeah. And like every one of those dudes was like three sets of 15 before he hit the field. Yeah. And, forearms uh, too. Forearms oh, yeah. probably in there. They got to get those things big and juicy. Oh yeah. And like everybody was just literally like hammer curls, like Kurt, like it was hilarious. They would come in and we'd see them like, as we shared, uh, like they had their own locker room, weight room, but we shared like, um, uh, like bathroom kind of common area. And I'd see those dudes in there, like baseball pants, shirts off, just basically doing pump sessions before they ran out there. And I remember thinking like, oh, I, I would have never have thought this with baseball, but I mean, it's straight up vanity. I mean, they're out there trying to look good. Yeah. So. That, that's exactly what it was. And back then they were probably, they were probably pumping a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, help, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I don't know when uh, when the testing came in, but uh, some of those dudes had some uncommonly large forearms. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So It, it was, was very prevalent in the game when I was there, and that was in uh, 2005, six. Yeah, that, this would have been about the time. This would have been like oh two, oh three kind of yeah. time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, every one of those dudes just like – like it, it's always funny like when you see a dude with like over – like way overly developed traps in comparison – or like some guy whose forearms look like Popeye with nothing else. Yeah. It was kind of always, it was, it was weird. I'm like, God damn, where'd that guy get the forearms? It must be like fucking beaten up 12 times a day. And it was like, <laughs> that's what those guys, they, they had those forearm things with the, uh, with the, um, uh, with the springs. So they yeah. were in there doing that with the curls. It was, it was hilarious. And uh, baseball, yeah. I, baseball I players, baseball got more players. F- yeah. we fucking had too much time, too much money. And they just fucked around too much. There's yeah. They've got more forearm exercises than I, I can shake a stick at. We would have, Dominican athletes come over um, and they had never stepped foot in a weight room. And you better believe that they knew how to do 15 different forearm exercises. They couldn't speak English. had never been in an organized weight room before. And they would sit there and crank out forearms all day long. Uh, the other one that was hilarious is, uh, and maybe this came from the Dominican, they would get uh, five gallon buckets of rice. Oh, and yeah. They were punching their hands and they're grabbing and they were yeah. doing all this forearm stuff like with the, with the rice and like moving their hands. I, yeah. I actually thought it was intelligent in terms of hand strength and what, but uh, their farms were fucking pumped as shit. And I was like, man, that, whatever those guys are doing with rice, it's a pretty good idea. And maybe that came from the Dominican too. The old rice buckets are a staple, especially for rehab. They're still, we actually still use some of that with, uh, with rehab athletes. Nice. Well, I'm uh, not a big, I'm not a big forearm guy because I, I think if you lift heavy loads that that takes care of most of the needs. So uh, we don't, I've never had forums in my program. Uh, it's never been a part of anything specific for baseball for me. You, we're going to lift heavy loads. We're not going to use. We're not going to use straps, and that's gonna that's gonna build it for me. Is, is there anything that's uh, that's come in in recent time that you think has just become kind of a game changer within it? Like you know, uh, we had uh, Brian Mann recently on the program uh, talking about velocity based training. 
Um, you know, it seems like there's certain things that have entered from the sports science realm that have really just taken athletes in a different direction. Uh, anything that you guys are incorporated or is it just actually going back and kind of skinning out all the stupid stuff and just getting these guys back to the basics? Yeah. The, uh, I guess, you know, where I'll go with this question is during COVID or right after COVID, when we were allowed back to school, I, uh, I changed our program a little bit. We went, I've always been a high, low guy. So your high, your high intensity days have, you know, all your sprints, your, your intensive jumps, throws, basically your, your heavy lower body lifting, maybe some upper body lifting. We've always ran a high, low system three days a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday were those high, uh, high, hard, um, intense days that we wanted you fast, strong, and powerful. And then, uh, Tuesday, Thursdays would be our low intensity days where we would focus on some, you know, recovery, recovery modalities, you know, maybe some extensive jumps, um, just getting basically our guys moving around and, and feeling better for those high intensity days. When COVID hit, we couldn't get in the weight room. And so I had to change. I had to completely blow our program apart. So we went to a four day model, which was really a two day model for COVID. And it was two high intensity days, Tuesdays and Fridays. And I don't think I'll ever go back. Less high intensity days for us has been better. Um, how we handle the program now is Monday is what we call um, basically a STEM day. I got this from Stuart McMillan and uh, Dan Paff out at Altus. And they used to talk about this all the time. I never had the balls to try it until I was forced with COVID. And they would say, your college athletes, they're not living right on the weekends. They, they, they're, they're. And I was one of these guys, you'd sleep till noon, right? You'd stay up way too damn late yeah. eating pizza because you got up at noon or whatever. You're going with your buddies to get whatever at uh, some random brunch or something. That's your first meal of the day. And so the t- by the time Monday comes, you've, you're basically in jet lag, right? And you would go to bed late on Sunday night because your ass couldn't sleep because you slept till noon the previous morning. And so you didn't sleep that night. And then you've got a wait, a weight room session that's early in the morning. For us with baseball, we used to have to lift early. And so I knew my guys weren't getting sleep. So we started the Monday, instead of using it as a high intensity day, we started doing it as a stim day. We'd bring them in and basically knock off the rust is what we called it. Where we move around, we do a little bit of high intensity stuff, some jumping and things like that. But it's just a 30 to 40 minute session to knock off the rust so that you can get back ready to go for that high intensity day on Tuesday. Instead of throwing our speed, strength, and you know your heaviest front squat or whatever on that Monday when your ass is not ready to train. And so we went to the uh, STEM day on Monday. Tuesdays became our, our max V day, our intensive jumps, heavy lower. Essentially, Wednesday was off. Thursday became another STEM day for us where we did upper body on that day. And then Friday was our uh, high intensity day with ACEL and our lower body work again. And two days versus three days a week for high intensity, I don't think I'll ever go back. Less has been so much more since we changed our scheduling. Um, and I've been super happy. The injuries, to be honest, the injuries have, uh, have trended in the uh, right direction. Um, I don't have to worry about sprinting on Monday mornings anymore where, to be honest, guys aren't ready to run. They're not ready to sprint on a, a, a Monday morning at six or seven in the morning after they've had that shit of a weekend. So that's one of the things that I have changed that, well, I'll never go back. Uh, TCU must've been different than where I went to college because our weekend started on Thursday. So Thursday night was a big go out night. Cause that was like dollar beers, like, the, you know, $2 wells. So that's where we would go out hard Thursday night. Yeah. Every Friday, 
uh, conditioning or training practice was an absolute bloodbath. Yeah. And I, I just, always wish. Just survive. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I always wish like they would have done like, uh, you know, I would have been happy to go like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then just give us off or do nothing on a Friday because yeah. uh, like, I mean, that was our big go out night. So I think like, uh, and we, we've heard it from other coaches where they're like, oh shit, like uh, Florida state, like their big go out nights, Tuesday night. So they know like Wednesday, I can't remember if it was Florida state, but storms. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, so I think you got to almost figure out like what the culture is within yeah. and maybe work around. Cause at the end of the day, I mean, you're talking 18 to 22 year old kids. And even though everybody wants to believe that they're in bed by eight o'clock and, right. you know, you know, reading this, I mean, you got to still be a kid and still have fun. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, and I tell, I mean, I, I tell our recruits that I tell them, we know you're going to have fun. I don't mind that. I know you're going to enjoy college and I hope you do. We're going to, we're going to program around that just a little bit for us. Baseball Friday is actually one of our uh, biggest practice days. Baseball practices Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all fall for the most part. And so I don't know how much our guys do a uh, Thursday night sessions, but uh, I haven't seen that very much, but I know they do. I know they get their, their fun in on Fridays and Saturdays. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a little different then. Yeah. I mean, but that, like you can either like force people to bend to your will or be realistic and be smart enough to be like, Hey man, like this is, this is college. These kids have such a small window, uh, you know, to be here and they're going to like, like we're either going to like go against human nature. Or we're going to work within it. And I think like that's a smart play where you're like, you know, dude, we know they're going to go out and have a good time. So it doesn't make uh, any sense for us to try to just come and butcher them the next morning. Cause I yeah. felt like our coaches knew we were going to go out. So they were going to try to fuck our world up on a Friday morning with like 6am uh, Indian runs. Like that was my favorite. Like we'd have to sprint down to our track stadium and do fucking Indian runs. And if you fell out, you know, and we'd still go out and drink. So cause yeah. fuck them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the Wednesday off for us has been a game changer too, because we used to do uh you know, five days straight through essentially. And, and you'd call recovery at seven in the morning. I mean, honestly you're making a guy get up the recovery should be letting him sleep in right sure and so wednesdays has been a huge a huge addition to have one day off but then with the uh, incoming football staff just this january we hired an, a new football coach and so they came in and forced me to change even again so the previous 14 years we had been a 7 a.m in the in the morning training uh team only because of necessity i've always disagreed with it i've hated it but that was the only time we can train. Baseball practice happens from, you know, one in the afternoon until 6 p.m. or whatever the case is. And you can't do anything in the afternoons, track and fields in the weight room. You've got other sports. And so we had to train in the mornings. Football has forced us to go in the afternoons now. So we train it, I think, this past spring, 12 and 2. Practice backed up to 3. And uh, that has been a blessing. So basically everywhere where I've been forced to change for the better, I don't think I'll go back. Mm, nice yeah well it's coach kaz coming into to tcu yeah well the uh the other thing too is there's always this misconception and i always call it like the mike o'hearn deal where it's like here i am at 4 a.m at the gym this is where all like the hard work takes place and you're like first of all dude like it's like jocko taking a picture of his watch at 4 a.m i'm like i'm really yeah. happy you're up at 4 a.m but believe <laughs> me like like all, all that means to do all, all that means to me is either you went to bed at six o'clock at night or you're getting four hours of sleep, which seems like a fucking horrible idea. Right. Which is going against what you're preaching all the time. Right. Yeah. So, which is, which yeah, is like, uh, you know, I mean, for me, it's like, uh, um, when I was younger, this is a little, uh, you said that you're about to have a kid. So I, uh, have a 10 month old. Okay. Then but I'm baby. not young. So I'm an, I'm an old, I'm an old guy. Yeah. I was going to say you're, uh, you're a little too old for that baby fight, but, uh, I, 
uh, like I had this whole plan basically in place, which was like, Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'm going to run a hundred miles an hour and I don't need to sleep. Like I'm fucking I'll, I'll, I'll out train sleep. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I like, I think I had my, I retired when I was 32, 33 from the NFL. And then I met my wife and, and she got pregnant. We had kids. And all of a sudden, like, uh, we had twins the first out the gate and, uh, I didn't sleep for about 45 minutes for about the first three months because my wife was breastfeeding them both. Yeah. And so it was like this constant deal. And, uh, I fucking aged in dog years and I was like reading everything. Cause I'm like, dude, like my whole life is coming apart when I wasn't sleeping. And, yeah. um, and then I got real big into this idea of sleep and you start realizing that like, you know, if you want to talk about anything that we've ever come across in terms of uh, human performance or, you know, true, true performance enhancing, it's sleep. And yeah. I, I'm sad that I was so stupid on the back end. Uh, Absolutely. Early on in my life. So I, uh, I was the same way, you know, when I was writing the book and a lot of the stuff that I've done, I would get up at four in the morning and that's when I would get my work in. We had a sleep expert come and talk to the guys this past year. So I think it was at the end of fall that we had a sleep expert and I cannot remember his name, but he's, he's a world renowned guy. He's been on, you know, TV shows, the view and been on Oprah and she's published, you know, she's put out his book and he's just, is he's done a, more Dr. sleep. Matt? Is it Dr. Matt? Um, it, and he's an some, old, uh, he's old. He's, he's in his, is he from the UK? No, he's in his eighties or he's in his, in, in, in like his late eighties or something like that. He's an old guy. Okay. Um, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up before we uh, get off here, but he came and spoke to the team and just, it really resonated with me. And he, he said, basically, you know, the studies have shown that college athletes need nine. I think his number was 9.25 hours of sleep. That's really what you need. And they had graphs and, and all kinds of stuff that showed when you get less than that, here's how your performance deviates. And, and this is what it equates to. And it was a great, it was great stuff. And it was right in the middle of me, you know, having my, uh, having my kid, he was probably four or five months old. And once he started sleeping and we moved this schedule back to where I don't come in at four 30 or five 30 in the mornings anymore. It was amazing. I, uh, I get my blood work done every, uh, April for my physical and for the last five years, testosterone, constantly, you know, goes down a little bit, goes down a little bit. This year, my testosterone was a hundred points higher than it's ever been in my life. And that's seven years down the road from the first test. And I was like, what the hell has changed? The change has been, is that one, my son sleeps 12 hours a night and he sleeps till seven in the morning. And so, and I don't have to get up early anymore for teams. I used to be here at five 30 in the morning, you know, at, at the latest sometimes. And now I'm coming in at nine. I put him to bed for his first nap at nine or nine 30. And I come to the office and it's just, it's an absolute game changer. So sleep has been the game changer in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I did. I couldn't believe it. Uh, two things I fucked up. Um, and you actually alluded to the first one. I thought, uh, building an aerobic base was complete fucking nonsense. Uh, I thought like all of that, uh, NSCA building aerobic base bullshit was like, uh, like the, the way I equated it to was like splinters in your ass from sitting on the bench too long. Like <laughs> it was the fucking worst. And I, I figured like, I'm going to sprint as fast as I can and I'm going to fucking bang heavy weights. And I'm going to condition and I'm just going to be so fit on this side that it was going to buy, by product, I'm just going to figure out the aerobic base. And yeah. then, uh, we did so, some training programs and, uh, we were actually having to cut body weight and the guy I was working with was like, Hey man, you got to throw some aerobic weight in or some aerobic work just to burn some calories to try to get into deficit. All of a sudden, I lost like 10% of my body weight. So I lost like 30 pounds for this deal. And uh, I PR'd every lift. 
Like I, I pulled like uh, over 600 for 10 reps on the deadlift, which I had never done. I mean, I was eating less calories and the only difference was I was doing like a big, you know, 20, 30 minutes of aerobic work seven days a week. Yeah. And, uh, I went back and looked at like, you know, mitochondrial density and all these other deciding factors. But for like, it was one of those things where I was like, ah, fuck, I totally fucked up on the aerobic capacity stuff. And I fucked up on the sleep thing. And I always wonder if I had like, you know, I mean, I had a pretty good 10 year career, like, uh, you know, what other injuries could I avoid it? Could I play at a higher level just by not being so fucking hard headed? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for football, especially it supports those, it supports ATP replenishment in those three to seven second windows that, that you need. And especially with a high paced offense, the more efficient your aerobic system is, the faster that you're going to replenish ATP. So football cannot, especially in today's day and age with the, uh, with the offenses and how fast they move, you cannot be against aerobic conditioning. No, I was. I thought it was stupid. I, I was like, this is fucking just. It, I, I was the same. We were the and, same way. 10 yeah. years, 15 years ago, I was like, well, this is the dumb. We'll never train. We're not yeah. going to train to be slow ever. You know, that's, yeah. that's the yeah. stupidest thing. But then you, you realize, I call it the Mike Boyle effect. Mike Boyle has been right on everything that, that I ever uh, hated. I and then you come back to it up. and you're like. I can't sign up on that. I can't sign up on that. Mike Boyle was right on a lot of shit. <laughs> We've had him on the podcast, but yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like. I went back and read all that research on like zone two uh, aerobic capacity and 70, 75% in terms of like silva or uh, blood volume and this, and you get into it and you're like, and then it actually took me doing it to actually prove it. It was like when all, like I, I didn't yeah. believe on the sleep side until all of a sudden I didn't get to sleep having twins. And then I realized the value of it. And, and um, I remember my dad uh, said to me once, if you have to make every mistake yourself, you're going to have a painful fucking hard life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, learn from others' mistakes. And, uh, like, I hear those words echo in my head more often than not. Um, so, if anybody's listening to this, building aerobic base and uh, sleeping are totally good. Zach, are there any other mistakes in your career, led to an injury, poor performance, anything that now is a staple, it's a principle, or a lesson you aim to teach interns now? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the biggest one is you need to be careful with the experimentation with your body because that's what I'm going through right now. I've got a collapsed L4, L5. I've got to have my left shoulder replaced from years of football and an experimental surgery. And so I actually can't, I really can't lift very much anymore. Um, I used to, Bill Gillespie was one of my mentors. He was, nice. you know, he's, he's one of the strongest human beings to ever, to ever live, if you want the truth. And I used to train max effort. I was a power lifter and I, I loved strength. I, I grew up with the West side system. And, and so Years of stupid experimentation took its toll, and I haven't been able to do a bilateral lift, a squat, uh, an RDL, a deadlift in something like six or seven years. I've got back issues every day. Um, and so that's what I tell my interns because I've got one right now that is, he's like, hey, man, I want to find out everything I can about Jay Schrader and Adam Archuleta's training and oh, all the Jesus. rebound stuff. And I want to do all that. And I was like, I was, I've gone down that road thinking that. And here's a lesson as strength coaches, especially young strength coaches, you think that there is an exercise or a way to do an exercise that is going to change your career and change your skill development. And I'm here to tell you that doesn't exist. It just doesn't. You have to be really skilled. You're probably not going to find something in the weight room that absolutely takes you to this, like just astronomical different level. I used to think that. And so I would experiment with, with the Jay Schrader stuff. And well, the stupidest well, you mistake, need the setup. 
I mean, uh, I don't know if you actually saw his setups where he had all like the stuff right. where they could oh. drop the barbells. I mean, it was yeah. very specific to what he was doing that I don't know if you could re- recreate yeah, what he you, was doing you with can. his machines, like his STEM machines that he fucking built in his garage. Oh, yeah. I talked to him on the phone and it was like, I don't know who, I, I mean, you couldn't replicate it anywhere else. You, there's no way. And um, so I'll tell you one of the stupidest moments I ever had was uh, doing 135 safety, uh, safety squat bar. I had 135 pounds on it. And I was doing death jumps from a 24 inch box with 135 pounds on, on a bar. And you want to talk about stupid. It didn't take but two or three before <laughs> my back uh, started causing some problems. So I would do stupid stuff like that all the time in the name of I'm going to find the exercise or the way to do an exercise. It's going to change how fast I am, how powerful and how explosive, how high I jump, all this stuff. In reality, there really isn't, you know, there really isn't that exercise or that way to do it. That's, that just takes you to an absolutely different level. Yeah. It can give you some adaptation. It can help, but at what cost? Well, that's risk versus reward. Yeah. That, this, I want to go back to our other point where we're say the importance of you having your interns go through the program you're providing there comes a point in a coach's life cycle when you have enough experience to anticipate the results of your program. And I like, I'm a D3 all-star, 5'7", 200 pounds, not very Twisted strong. Twisted steel and sex appeal, right? Mm. That's what I, I, I It's called, uh, no. But <laughs> I have worked with athletes that are far greater than I will ever be, or ever like the capacity, capability, and everything, but still can anticipate the tools that I do provide them can take them where they can't take themselves, but you must go through. Yeah. Going through the program that you then apply or write yourself and learn those lessons. But there will come a point where you are unable to follow said program. Did you ever see, you uh, did you ever see Kane and Kung Fu? Like, uh, do you remember that TV show Kung Fu with, uh, David Carradine where he was kind where he was Kane, Kwajan Kane, and he would like wander through and he was like, on yeah, these, meet like, people getting adventures. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think like early on, uh, when we were lifting weights and started training, uh, we were like Kane, we were just wandering from town to town trying to like figure out like what would make us a fucking Kung Fu master. And we did the same shit. Like I remember, uh, it's funny you bring up depth jumps because they wrote an article, uh, like I remember we were in high school, this would have been, I graduated high school in 94. So this would have been like early nineties. Um, somebody wrote an article that the Russians were basically jumping off these things and doing depth jumps. And so they, uh, we started jumping off picnic tables and then trying to jump onto another picnic table, uh, as one. And then they stacked two picnic tables on top of it. We had to jump off and try to land in an athletic position. Uh, I almost fucking ruptured my patellar tendon and had patellar tendonitis. And then, uh, I ran, um, I wanted to run, uh, the hurdles, but, uh, I wasn't necessarily fast enough to run the hurdles. So they were like, if you throw the shot, we'll let you run the hurdles. And then I tripped over and kind of jammed up my knee, but like the stupid shit we did in track and football. Like I look back and I'm like, first of all, whoever thought any of this was a good idea. Um, and you know, like I'm amazed that we're still here. So I think, uh, just maybe it, it, it takes, and I'm sure for you, like the journey you went on, you're like, Hey man, I know where you're going. Don't fucking go there. Cause you're going to end up fucking broken. Listen to a little bit of reason. You don't have to be quite John Kane wandering from town to town trying to fuck yourself up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and some some of uh, some of our interns actually probably need that to happen, right? For them to get their their for them to get their shit straight, if you want the truth. Um, well, tell him to go meet Bill Gillespie and see yes. how thick his eyelids are because he can't even open his eyes because he's effectively somehow built a cocoon of muscle around his body that includes his eyeballs from popping out of his fucking head. 
<laughs> that that might be what it is. Oh, yeah. and, uh, like I'm I'm firmly convinced because uh, we just saw him at Summer Strong. As I was talking to Bill, I realized he's created this like cocoon of like muscle around his body and specifically his eyeballs, so they don't pop out of his head because his eye because like his eyelids are so thick and they're like hanging down like a uh, like yeah. a Sharpay almost. And I'm like, dude, this guy's effectively like morphed his body in to be able to bench 1,300 pounds. It's yeah. something crazy like that. And and I mean, he's he's not getting any younger either. He's he's got to be <laughs> 60 years old or something like that. Yeah, at the time, he's pretty fit. <laughs> he's unbelievably fit. Yeah. At the time that I uh, we trained together and I lifted with him, he was uh, I think he was shooting for nine twenty two. He was forty forty six or forty seven. Um, shit, that he's got to be older than sixty now. But I, well, maybe he wasn't that. Maybe he was in his low low forties, early forties, or something like that. But he was shooting for nine twenty two, and now he does like some crazy dumb yeah. stuff. It's like it's, it's, it's over thirteen hundred pounds. Oh in, in the bench. And they, uh, so, um, there's a bunch of really cool research with the blood flow restricted training, uh, yeah. talking about like, you know, when you can, uh, you know, basically impact venous blood flow and not reduce or not block arterial blood flow that within like the veins, and the arteries, the extra pressure ends up increasing greater elasticity of like the artery walls. And yeah. so like, as we age, we start getting this, like, you know, uh, I think like basically stiff artery walls within our veins and collapse veins. And that the blood flow restriction, uh, even using as little as one to two times a week, you know, with just like some basic movements will restore it. And, uh, there's some really fucking cool research with it. When I look at Bill Gillespie, I think he's basically BFR his entire body. And I would love to have like an ant, like to somehow get like a scan of his arteries because they must have like the most like flexible, like just because like the red color, like it looks like what, what happens to my arms and legs after BFR. He's basically yeah. BFR in his body. Like I, I'm, I'm just always amazed whenever I see him, I'm like, God damn it. This guy is he's basically like throwing he's his body pumped. on the funeral pyre, uh, pyre of fucking lifting weights. And he survived. I think he's, I think he's going to live to be 200. Yeah, he might. Yeah. He might. He he's, I, I will say this about Bill is I cherished my time with him. He taught me a lot and he's, he's an amazing human being. Yeah. Like he is a phenomenal, he's a phenomenal man when it comes to, when it comes to being a mentor, his family, his, his, his faith, all that stuff. He's a phenomenal person. Uh, is there any, um, I mean, you, you obviously have a big powerlifting background. I mean, from training with those guys, is there anything that you, uh, gleaned from those guys or things that you were like, fuck, we'll never bring this to baseball. Um, you know, I, early on in my career, I started with a lot of those concepts where we, we'd box squat. Um, and I would lift some, I would make our guys lift some heavy, heavy loads. We did the, uh, five, three, one. I've got kind of an adaptation. I've created off Windler's five, three, one. And I love that for strength development. If you want the truth. Um, but I guess I've kind of regressed from that, uh, over the last, you know, five or five or seven years to where we do a lot more single leg work now, depending on the, depending on the athlete, we do a lot more single leg work, especially with our pitchers. Um, but I'll still chase heavy loads with those guys. We'll still chase that stuff. It's just, you know, maybe it's a little bit more quote unquote movement based versus some of the heavy bilateral stuff. We still use trap bar deadlifts, front squats, uh, safety bar squats. I still use all of those pieces at some point in time. It's just, it's just not the program, I guess. That's how I should put it. Gotcha. You know, they're all pieces of the program. They're not the program. And everything is is built around the athlete that we have in front of us, their injury history, their movement, their movement uh, capabilities. 
and the position that they play. That's really what it's all built on. And, and if it warrants using that, uh, that movement or a bilateral movement, then great. If it warrants using uh, a single leg movement, then great. We're going to attack, you know, heavy periods with high loads. And we do that on single leg strength. And we're going to attack, you know, lighter periods with lighter loads and speed and, and velocity on the bar. We use velocity-based training, like you talked about earlier. So we use, we use everything. There's really nothing that's, that's, you know, that, that we don't do. It just depends on the athlete, the sport, the position that you play, all those things factor into it. Yeah. I know going overhead for throwing athletes, it's like throwing the, the, the baby out with the bathwater, no overhead pressing, no pull-ups. So what's your take there for any vertical pulls or pushes? Sure. Well, yeah, actually, uh, I mean, we're going to do both. The, the, re- the one place that I don't necessarily chase is bilateral overhead pressing. So like barbell, both arms, we do a ton of single arm pressing. And I've got a, uh, a research grade EMG unit that we've done studies on. We took every low trap and serratus active uh, exercise that we could think of and looked at the activation levels that go through the low trap and serratus on these exercises. And once the humerus gets above um, horizontal to the par- uh, horizontal to the ground or away from uh, perpendicular to the torso, once it gets above, you know, shoulder height essentially. That's when the serratus is the most active. So you can't train the serratus, which is a very, very, very important muscle for your throwing athletes for upward rotation of the scapula. You can't train the serratus without doing some form of pressing. So single arm kettlebell presses, um, what we call waiter walks, upside down kettlebell waiter walks, uh, landmine press variations. Those are all going to be in our program because you have to do that. Our athletes are overhead athletes, so we still need to train them to be to be strong and stable in those positions. Um, but I just modify exercises depending on, again, the athlete, um, if you've got a guy that has really, really tight restricted lats or has a type three acromion process where they can't get, it's going to show as a restricted lat, but they can't get full flexion overhead. Well, then you're basically just creating this massive compensation effect. So you have to kind of know the athlete that you're working with, but we are still going to chase those, those, uh, those, uh, those movements. We, pull-ups are actually a stable, uh, a staple in our uh, program. So pull-ups, overhead pressing, it's just how we do it. It's, it's not necessarily bilateral all the time. Yeah. I worked with the team in which pull-ups was banned by the sport coach due to him having a fat ass and not being able to do pull-ups. Aside from that, an ankle injury, oh, meaning God. a fall down from the guy came bar. off the pull-up bar. Yeah. I, heard his yeah. Ankle. I actually had to listen to this story. I've, I've, I've heard it all. I had a kid that uh, told the coach that he did that and broke his ankle by jumping off the pull-up bar from the week before. And I, I know everything that happens in the weight room. We train as a group. I, I know everything. I, I see everything that's going on. Turns out the kid, um, girlfriend broke up with him or whatever, something something along those lines. He ended up one night, he's a 230-pound catcher, decided to run from campus, TCU, to the stockyards. If you've ever been here, it's about a seven mile journey, probably down and another seven miles back. So at two in the morning, he decided he was just pissed off. I'm going to run to the stockyards, ended up fracturing a bone in his foot and then tried to blame it on the pull-ups. I had to do a little research and a little digging through some friends. Come to find out he'd done a 14 mile run at two in the morning because he was pissed off. I don't think I've ever liked a girl that much to be able to go run 14 miles. 
So he I mean, got his aerobic re- capacity working. He must have really been in love because I don't know if I've ever been in that. But there's a lot of things I've done, but that's not one of them. 14 miles right? sounds like a terrible fucking idea. Terrible. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the only reason people dislike pull-ups is because they can't do them themselves. <laughs> that's really, I, like, I've, I've come to, and that, that's very true with strength coaches, too. They kind of tend to program things that they like yeah. that they're good at. And uh, I think for a lot of times, oh, yeah, we don't like well, those pull-ups. Especially the, the interns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you got a fat ass, it's tough to do pull-ups. We found that working with the military in the army. I mean, that's why you don't really have fat Marines. Can, can't do pull-ups with a fat ass. Yeah, motivation. Motivation. Cool. Uh, Zach, where do you see the future of strength and conditioning? It's worked its way, and you didn't have this advantage. It's worked its way into now a, a major at undergrad and colleges. So people are having the advantages that you did not have. So are you going to see them progress past what you're providing now or based on the interns you're getting in, are you a little nervous? Um, it, I mean, it goes both ways, right? I, I think it will progress beyond that. And I think the future is, is I guess there's going to be sports science that actually comes into the, into the play and usable sports science, I should say, because I think that's where it goes a little off track right now is that there is sports science, but not a lot of strength coaches know how to use, implement it, and actually use it to affect daily programming. And I think the more information and the more programs that, that start up sports science and the more internships you can find in that realm, I think strength coaches can be, they can be helped by, by, the, uh, by these smart kids coming into sports science and actually providing some objective feedback and information. We try to make everything in our program as, a, as objective as possible. I just don't have the background and the time to build out all these systems and, 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 you know, computer programming, whatever you want to say to, to exactly know what's going on all the time. And I think that can be done. And I think that will be the future. It's just, we have to get, you want sports scientists that have kind of been in the trenches a little bit so that they know how to, how to go both sides. Because a lot of times what we're finding is sports science, sports science, uh, interns and, and coaches out there have never been on this side of it. They've never been on the coaching side of it. And so they have no context of how they should actually apply their information. Yeah, I think that's an excellent view. One of the aims of our online education is the social intelligence. Yeah. So we see this as an opportunity where, yes, cosign on the CSES that creates opportunities for you, but then we help our coaches get the jobs. So while their resume with the CSCS gets them in the door, we yeah. help pre- create the social intelligence to explain to sport coach, uh, a higher up strength coach, parent, athlete, why they should have our specific setup and execution. Well, and, and the other one, I always, uh, whenever anybody ever asks me about it, I always think um, being personable and having people like you is by far the best asset you have, especially in terms of getting a job. I'm sure when right. people come in, like you want to work with people you want to work with. And if some guy's abrasive and, you know, doesn't listen and, you know, thinks he knows everything, you're like, I'm not going to fucking work with this guy because it's going to take me so long to be able to get there. I need guys that are, you know, on yeah. my team that understand the message that, uh, you know, are easy to work with, have a good smile on their face and aren't coming in acting like you're, you know, going to remove their fingernails every day if they don't do well. And so yeah. I think like a big thing is if you want to, if you want to do well, one, you got to know your shit. Um, you have to be confident. And more importantly, you have to have a, you know, sense of humor and a good personality and the type of dude where somebody's like, hey, you want to get beer? 100%. If nobody's yeah. ever asked you to go get a drink after work, that's a fucking problem. 
<laughs> and uh, I mean, that's true. And it, I think in the strength coaching deal, um, it's such a, and I, I hate to use the term old boy network, but it is. I mean, you want to work with people right. you like, and hey, if uh, you know, you, somebody you like calls and recommends a guy, is a good dude? Can I work with him? 100%. You know, that, yeah. that goes a long way. So I think for a lot of guys trying to crack into this thing, uh, my advice to them is like, hey, find the head guy, you know, be personable, be funny, um, you know, be the first guy to show up and have that guy think like, hey, this is a good dude. This is a guy I would want around. If he's yeah. counting the days to get rid of your ass, um, then it's probably not the right you know situation to approach. Yeah. And, you know, as a young strength coach, I used to think it was all about the X's and O's, but you realize that it's not about that. It's about building relationships. And it's exactly what you just said, not only with the athletes, but with the coaching staff, with the administration, with, with whatever it is, athletes, parents, it's building relationships. And you can't teach that a lot of times to young coaches. You can't teach that to interns. They have to, they, they just, you have to have that it factor a little bit. Um, I can teach you the X's and O's, but that's one of the things that I didn't realize as a young strength coach. I thought I needed to read, you know, the latest Soviet uh, research and find what Yuri Verkashansky was doing with Olympic athletes in 1967. And, and that stuff, it's not about that. It's about building trust and relationships. Well, the other problem too, is they were a communist country, which meant like, if you didn't get results, they sent you to the gulag regardless yeah. Whereas, you know, nobody's basically sending you to Siberia if you don't know how to fucking X's and O's, you know, so it's, it's just a different time. And, uh, what's wild too now, uh, I feel like because of this NIL deal, I mean, you guys were a little bit in the recruiting, but, uh, what's pretty apparent is, and I, dude, I, I've, so, I've said this for years. I spent more time with my strength coaches than I ever did my position coaches because we were in the off season. Like they were the guys. And I always think like, Though, you know, you guys have turned into almost salesmen where, you know, the athlete interacts with you so much that you have to be able to constantly be selling them because now if they're unhappy, they're like, this guy doesn't like me, which is always my favorite. And, uh, I always tell young guys, I'm like, you know what coaches hate hardworking dudes that play well, they always are against those dudes. So if the coach right. hated you, it was probably because you were a hardworking, good player, team guy who was willing to bust his ass because coaches hate that. Right. And, and it's, it's actually tough these days with uh, social media out there because they see, what some guru or somebody's doing somewhere else. And so they're always, they always question you now as far as why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And so in some effect, yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be some salesmanship going on in the future with strength and conditioning, because you've kind of got, you've got to get your guys to believe and trust in your program in what they're doing versus what they're seeing on social media somewhere else. Well, I, I would always just ask him, at least in your position, does that guy have a book? He doesn't have a book. Yeah, he's not as good as me. Right. Uh, I have a book. They they just don't give books to people that are fucking hacks. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The, like, the young guys are probably well, he's, he's probably right. He's got a book. You know. Yeah. Well, it used to it used to work. I don't know if it's working. That's the Jedi mind. Uh, no, I, I still think the Jedi mind trick fucking works on those guys. I mean, like, I, I got a book. Here it is. Like, it's over there. Go take a look. We'll be fine. Yeah. All right. I I got one more fun. Sure. What are some interview questions screening process that you put in place to accelerate the the learning of your potential interns see if they pass the beer test the we we call it the layover test can we get stranded in the airport with this person for six hours or like get me out of here yeah that's actually a good one so i used to have a a question on our uh our sheet that would go out to interns was circle your drink of choice and it was beer liquor and i think iced tea or something like that and that was uh, that that gave us some insight into because when we were young strength coaches before mar before we were married, our staff has been together forever. So we were like a family. And uh, so 
we wanted interns that were going to come in. And just like you said, we could hang out with, we went out to happy hours all the time. We, we would take float trips down to New Braunfels, um, to San Marcos or whatever it is down there. Um, we, we did stuff as, as, as a group all the time. So we wanted, we wanted our guys circling the first couple there, beer or liquor, uh, not tea and coffee. So that was one of them. I'll, that that's one from a long time ago. Nice. Did, did anybody just circle? Yeah, circle the whole thing. Yeah, yeah I don't yes. know. If I, <laughs> or that would have been my move. Stand uh, out. I would have numbered it. I would have been coffee like uh, a.m. and then everything else from like after twelve. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So yeah. then, iced tea at lunch. I I always felt like uh, you're only an alcoholic if you don't if you start drinking before noon unless you're on vacation. Then you're an alcoholic if you don't. No, well, yeah, I mean, uh, like, so if if you're on vacation, you can drink before noon. But I have that whole like, I don't like to drink before noon deal. Always feels weird, unless you're on vacation, and then it's kind of like, uh you guys, you guys aren't like that. Like the whole like, you go to like breakfast with somebody and they have like six Bloody Marys, and you're like, holy shit, dude, this guy's a drinker. <laughs> no, I'm now, with you after twelve or twelve oh one, I'm okay, but like eight a.m. can't do it. Yeah, late nighter. Uh, okay. Anything else, Sean? No, it's been great, man. Thank you yeah. so much, dude. This was uh, yeah. awesome to connect. And uh, yeah, man, I'm now I will watch TCU uh, baseball. Where should people go if they want to pick up Movement Over Maxes and follow your socials? Yeah, so everything social media-wise is just Zach Dakin. It's at Zach Dakin, I guess I should say. Um, ZachDakin.com is is the website where you can find you know Movement Over Maxes, our 3D Movement Prep, the Baseball Performance Summit, which are some other products that, you know, obviously give out information. So it's basically Zach Dakin everywhere. And, and, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. This was, this was fun. Cool. Well, thank Sweet, you, man. Yeah. We'll hit you up when we're in Fort Worth. If you're ever down in yeah. Austin, let us know. Yeah. We, uh, we, we play in Austin, not, we just played in Austin in, uh, March. So, uh, we will be down there again, uh, in not next year, but the year after. So, Sweet. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I took my kids to go see the Astros and it was funny. My son, came back and uh, I was amazed by like the things that he, like when we go out and play catch, he was uh, like somehow thought that like catch started with the ball on the ground. Like, like, cause he, he saw these guys running and they were all like, for some reason they were all barehanding like ground balls sure. and trying to increase. So like the Astros are awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, it just was hilarious. He like, he's like, no, 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 this is how they, they, this throw, is how they, they start everything. Game, yeah. and he, he's six. <laughs> so we're out there and he's like, so I throw him the ball. He'd like put it on the ground and then was like picking it up. And I, I, I like, started and i was like sounds great i that's a great way let's start every catch that way probably as you're trying to barehand it so then i started it's, rolling them back and then it's he actually not them. that's not bad for him that's not bad for him that <laughs> developed some athleticism in throwing no it, it was uh it, hilarious and so i'm like uh i'm like rolling them back he's barehanded them but yeah it was fun uh and we like we sat like right on the first baseline like five rows like five rows up so they actually got to see the players and yeah. it was so impactful for them. Like the one thing my daughter's like, these guys aren't in very good shape. They're kind of fat. I'm like, yeah, they are. Uh, but they hit the shit out of the ball and they're pretty good. So obviously, you know, they're not standing out there because they're, it's a beauty contest. She must've been talking about the Marlins. Uh, no, it was one of the, it was the guy that was playing second base, I think for. Well, yeah, that's Altuve. He's a, he's a, he's my hero. Five, seven all-star. Yeah. yeah Five, seven. You might be, you might be giving him a few. <laughs> Always. Short King Summer, man. Nice. I'm talking about his boot height. Yeah. All right. Zach, we'll let you go, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. 
Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!